Hey, welcome back or welcome to the Single Track Podcast. I'm calling this Strava Week because yes, we have another representative from the platform here today. Larissa Rivers is the North American marketing lead at Strava, leading all brand efforts in the US and Canada through community building and nationally engaging programs. She joined Strava back in 2012 when it was still only relatively known amongst a cult following of cyclists with a view towards growing the brand amongst runners. The year after that, she and her husband, Brett, opened up San Francisco Running Company to serve trail runners in the Bay Area. They sold the company in 2019 and now live with Mountain Views in Louisville, Colorado with their three young and very active girls. In this conversation, we go in depth about her experience helping to establish that iconic San Francisco Running Company brand with Brett and her advice for getting a trail running specific store off the ground. That was really fun. Uh, we look at what it was like in the early days of building the run community on the Strava app. We look at how Strava works with athlete influencers, her favorite stories to tell as a marketer, and how even hardcore athletes can be relatable to the rest of the community. We talk about ways to make all athletes comfortable being their raw, authentic selves on the platform. And we close with ways to improve representation in our sport. Let's waste no more time here because I cannot wait to publish this one. The eighth episode of the Single Track Podcast is here. Welcome, Larissa Rivers. Larissa Rivers, welcome to the Single Track Podcast. Great. Thanks. It's great to be here. So the first question I want to ask you, and I like to ask this of every guest that comes on the pod, what is exciting you most about the sport of trail and ultra running right now? Hmm. I think there's, I think what I has been most exciting for me, and this is probably related to the pandemic is this new live stream phenomenon. It was so fun to see Western states when I couldn't be there. Like I, I think I've been or had been historically when I lived outside of California or in California every year from like 2009 to when we moved in 2019. And so it was something that I missed. And then with the pandemic and not even having the race, being able to have it on my television for 30 hours, literally 30 hours, I think we, we barely turned it off. It was such a fun thing that Billy Yang and Dylan and Corinne did to keep the community connected around those events. Strava is actually sponsoring a live stream for Broken Arrow, which would be really cool around their 26K. And even I know that UTMB has done it for a while. And I had the privilege of being on it for an hour in 2019, which was really fun. And it was also just super fun to watch that race when I couldn't be there in person either. So I just, I hope that continues. I hope that they still have that touch point with ultra and trail races to bring that community together. That's a great answer. Do you know if, is are Dylan and Corinne going to be handling the Broken Arrow broadcast as well? I believe they are. They're, I think they're doing it. As far as I know, they are, unless thing, something's changed, but they're doing the tour of live streams. They are really good. I would have thought that they had this really extensive journalism background prior to what they've done at Western States. And I mean, Dylan has his podcast and Corinne has been on the podcast circuit too, but they are really talented and I'm excited to see where they go with this. Yeah, me too. Well, I want to jump to this greater topic about Strava and its influence on our trail and ultra running community. Uh, and I want to lead with uh, the fact that you used to own and run one of the most iconic 
running stores in the country with your husband, Brett, and that's San Francisco running company. Can you talk about some of the experiences first with that business and if it informed any of your marketing strategy at Strava in the long run? So one, all the credit goes to Brett (laughs) because he started this running store after a long stint at Zynga because he felt like our community lacked a place to come together. We didn't really have a neighborhood running store at the time. And I think one of the things that he did that Strava did before my time was that it was very much brand led. Like he led with what's like the cool t-shirt people are going to walk out of my store with. Now, of course, we're going to be experts on the things that trail and ultra runners because we came from that community and because we care about it and we're passionate about it. But it's like, what's going to get someone to represent my brand or feel like really strongly about San Francisco running company. And so we, we spent a lot of time, he spent a lot of time like working on the design, what's the name. And similarly, like Mark and Michael, who started Strava really were like, their vision for Strava was to be this home of your athletic life, not just a cycling app for hardcore (laughs) cyclists. That's where they started, but they led with like, what's the name of our company? What's this brand? And how do we create this like cult-like status with the brand, but just like making it really cool. And with San Francisco Running Company in particular, it was Brett loved the Proof Lab store. He's like, I just love surf shops. He's like, I don't surf, but I go in there and I want to buy a surf shirt because it's cool. Like you go into a specialty run store and for the most part, it's kind of dorky. Like it's sort of a dorky sport. It's getting cooler, but he's like, how do we make running cool? And what ways can people show up at the shop and just like want to want to represent the brand? Um, And so I think that was like, there are lessons that... I think both of the brands that I've worked for, I've been fortunate to see come to life. Um, And a funny story was my, I guess, current head of marketing, but at the time he was the, he's our chief revenue officer and he was on the ground at UTMB. He's like, I've seen more of your running store's brand here than Strava's. (laughs) It's like, you've taken a hold of the ultra community and they all just want to represent SFRC, which was really cool to hear. I love that. So that th- what I heard that what one thing that stuck out in the conversation was uh, how a running store can become this center of your athletic life. That's a great phrase. Can you talk about some of the tactics that you and Brett deployed to sort of create this cult-like status around the store? Because you've already mentioned a few, but it has managed to transcend that local uh, Mill Valley area. So I'm curious. I think the first and foremost was just like hiring people who are passionate about the sport and also being really picky about what products and services we brought in to the store. They want, we wanted them to feel like they were the ones that we want to talk about that we use them. So that when people are like, why would I buy a rural recovery? And we're like, because it actually works. Cause we spend most of our evenings just rolling the shit out of our legs. And that was a big part of what we wanted to establish within that. I think the vision for the store initially was almost like the Rafa store. If you've ever been to the one in San Francisco, or I don't know if they all exist like this, but there was like a table and you'd watch the tour and get coffee. And we wanted it to be this place where you could have this experience where you're just like hanging out with your friends there. And while we didn't end up doing the couch and the coffee, it still became that because of the group runs, because it was so adjacent to the trails that so many people used and loved 
you know, you're the place where you came. If you were traveling to San Francisco, people wanted to know where they go hike or run. You know, we had a big map and we would show you, or we would pull up Strava and say like, here's our, you know, Saturday running route. If you want to check this out. And so I think that was a big reason because people felt like they could go there for really clear advice and the location sort of helped because we could give people trail beta so they could experience what we loved about the area. Yeah. Could you paint a picture of how group runs worked out of the store and and, and what that looked like from pre-run to during run to post-run and how the store amplified the experience? Yeah. So I'll start with like a funnier point. I will take credit for this. Rhett wanted to do like a Wednesday night group run, similar to how Boulder Running Company used to do a big group run. They would get like 200 people. It was like a five mile loop. Everyone had like pizza and beer afterwards. But getting people from San Francisco or even people from Mill Valley who were running, who were like working in San Francisco to participate in a 6 p.m. group run on a Wednesday was virtually impossible. So we'd get like three people there. For our launch, I was like, let's do a trail run. You know, we're two miles from the Tennessee Valley Trailhead, not even, I think it was like a mile and a half or mile and a quarter. And we can just do like a loop and we can tell everyone what the map is and we'll run it out of the store at like 8 a.m. on a Saturday and have this launch party of the store. Got a ton of people to come, mostly our friends, and did the group loop. And everyone afterwards like, can we do this every Saturday? Like, I don't know where to run or I like running on trails with people. So I'm not just cursing the hill that I'm running up or, you know, I always get lost in the headlands. And so that's where the Saturday run evolved from. And what was cool about that is it started out with the people we knew who would invite the people they knew. And they'd all gather in front of the store, whether it was like cold or hot or whatever. People would use the bathroom. They'd buy a couple of goose. Brett would always give a little speech, hand out paper maps, like the map drawn up. Our kids would always be running around. We'd trade off who was going to go on the run or he would like bring the Bob stroller and we would end up, I mean, probably every week we had 30 to a hundred people, depending on whether or not we had a brand there doing shoe demos. And then I want to give it the credit to Patty O'Leary because I believe he was leading November project at the time, Okay, but they were like, this is our Saturday thing is the SFRC run. And so all these young San Francisco people came and it got to the point where when we sold the store, I think I would know five people there and it would, there would still be like, you know, 30 to 80 people at any Saturday run. Like it really evolved into this sort of thing that everyone did on the Saturday who cared about trail running. Well, two things. One, you're making me want to start a running store right now. This sounds, so cool. I mean, this sounds, this sounds like the best life. It, like, <laughs> it was, ask Brett. He's, he's, it was very hard work. Seven days a week. Number two, I, I could talk about this all day, but I actually do want to talk about Strava at some point. The last question on this topic, for anybody in the audience that does want to start a running store, what advice do you have for them for how to get it off the ground and what they should be prioritizing first? Like this brand led strategy you're talking about, that is awesome. And I think we're seeing other brands and other, other areas of running do this well, like Tracksmith, for example, they were brand led from the beginning and they're crushing it. What advice do you have for getting off the ground? I think the biggest part is really knowing and understanding your community and what they want. You know, we were filling a void that we personally felt as trail and ultra runners and even just like runners in general. I think a runner's mind, you know, opened their stores shortly after ours in San Francisco and cater to a bit more of the road running crowd. But I I do think that um, like do it for the community, make that the biggest 
reason why, because I, and, and honestly, there's a lot of parallels with Strava too there, but if you are putting the customer and the athlete and the runner's needs first, they'll come. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. So I do want to spend the bulk of our time talking about Strava and I want to open up the conversation by noting the fact that you were the first hire for Strava run. And I'm curious about how you came to Strava. So what your entry into the business looked like. And then I'd love to just talk about how you went about kind of bringing runner DNA into the company, because I think when it was founded, the value proposition was for cyclists and kind of competitive cyclists. So yeah, talk about that if you don't mind. So to clarify, it was the first run specific employee brought on. So they had already launched the Strava run up, <laughs> but the, the strategy that Mark and Michael, our founders at Strava had when they launched Strava was kind of this, Mark always says, like inch wide and mile deep. Oh, yeah. And so at the time, cyclists used devices and were very like much more familiar with GPS the segment technology that Davey Kitchell, who's like owned, has patents on that, was just like core to how a cyclist just used, like did in their sport. But they always had visions of it being for like other sports. And run was like the easy parallel to that one. So when I started, I think there were 30-ish, 35-ish employees, most of them these relatively hardcore cyclists of people who are really passionate about cycling, who are building our product and features. And I was brought on largely to sort of build the running community. At one point they like joked around that I was sort of like the Tom of my space. I just like followed runners and let them knew, know that that's like, <laughs> I love that comparison. What, what you do. <laughs> and the other funny, like job I had was to keep the run product top of mind. Cause at the time we had two separate apps. And so, you know, if you're a cyclist and you're doing engineering work and building software for an app, are you going to, pay attention to this run app. We just, we just bolted run on to the cycling features. So even when I started in the feed, it had elevation for your run instead of pace. And so I was like, I mean, unless you're a trail runner, you don't really care what your elevation was. on like a 10 K run. <laughs> you want to know what your pace was, you know? So just things like that, like making sure that the engineers were thinking about running when we were improving up to the point where I like, I had a former career, very short one as a personal trainer. And I'm a USATF, mm. like level one trained running coach. And so I wrote training plans for everyone to do this giant, the giants race is like this half marathon, 5k, 10k and brought like running groups in to run from the Strava office, just to sort of like remind everyone that we had running as a core focus it was very, our approach at that time was very grassroots. We got a sprinter van at one point and traveled to various cities, either attending events or creating our own that had computers in there. You could plug in your GPS device and upload and look at all the maps and stuff. And so it was definitely, it was really fun. It was a lot of work just in terms of getting people to pay attention to a, a company when no one, especially in running, had heard of Strava before. So I think that was probably like the most fun, but also the the hardest part of the job. It's like, what what is Strava? And trying to explain that really concisely at the time was somewhat difficult. So as a marketer in the organization, what are some of your, and there's a lot of storytelling that goes on, mm -hmm. I imagine, in order to 
paint the picture of, you know, if you sweat, you're an athlete, et cetera. What are some of your favorite stories to tell? And over the years, what have been some of the recurring themes? What tends to resonate most with subscribers when you're selling the value proposition of the platform? The stories, well, I'll, I'll start with the, well, I think, I think it resonates with our athletes too. The stories I love to tell are the sort of unexpected ones or like, the, and not even just the mundane is the wrong word, but like the person running their first marathon was probably one of my favorite activations that we did. And of course, Billy Yang did the film and it was amazing, but we did this film called Becoming a Marathoner. And we picked um, these three people to be featured in the film who were, you know, kind of just your run of the mill person doing their first marathon. They all had, you know, different reasons for why they were running. One woman had recently gotten divorced. Another one had lost a ton of weight and was just like his ramp up to his next thing. The other woman's mother was a marathoner and she had, ALS. And so she really just wanted to like run a marathon for her mom. And, and it was just, it was super inspiring for the people who watched it. I've, every time I've watched it, I've teared up at the end. Billy had camera people run with each of them throughout the entire race. We filmed them during their training and it's the kind of stories that are so much more inclusive, but more like relatable to the athletes on our platform. Not everyone's a pro athlete. It's cool that you can, you know, follow Molly Seidel and, right. you know, Tade on Strava. She's an awesome but, follow, by the way. I know. I talked to her today, actually. <laughs> but I think those are the ones that I like telling. And, and this is going to sound really trite, but being in the ultra running community, you're like, oh, another person ran across the United States, like, cool. But <laughs> it's just kind of on this edge of crazy that people can get inspired by, but not feel like, oh yeah, I think I'm going to like get up and run across the United States of America. But like running under four hours in a marathon or running a marathon for the first time ever, doing a triathlon when you're 55 years old, there's like a woman we're featuring in our campaign now that I just like, she's the coolest. Those are the stories that I love telling. And I think, you know, I just ran a campaign around the Olympics in the US during the Olympics. So it just wrapped up a couple of months ago. And People liked the content from the professional athletes, but they really loved the content from the athletes who won our dream bigger contest. Uh, one of them was this, this female triathlete. Yeah. Um, and they just seemed to resonate with that more because they could see themselves potentially in, in their eyes, you know, like, oh, that's cool. If she can do it. I can do it. There's something really exciting about that. And I think for the sake of, Strava and our growth and the image and perception we want to portray as a brand is that if you're an athlete, you belong. And an athlete is anyone who strives, whether that's getting out the door and walking a couple miles because you want to get some fresh air. It feels important for you mentally to move or it's because you want to do your first race. Amen. <laughs> so you mentioned this, I actually want to come back to this because you mentioned it earlier in the conversation that Strava is sponsoring the live stream at Broken Arrow. Can you talk about the extent of that involvement, what it looks like from a support standpoint, and whether this will be a recurring strategy for Strava in the future? I think it's an awesome entry into ultra running. I mean, I know you've been in the sport for in other capacities, but this is a really cool way to get involved, I think. Yeah, we actually, we sponsored Western States in the past. So this isn't like a new foray into events. It must, it might feel like that because right. 
we haven't had events in a really long time. But yes, I would say one of my personal goals out of this live stream sponsorship is to create a playbook of sorts that we can then apply to events going forward. And and Brandon and the team there are just amazing partners because I, I think we're both like equally excited to work with each other. And Brandon's a friend. I've known him for several years now. So we can take a little liberties and like what we can do and having these segment challenges there, especially during a trail race where the segments are just like a core part of that race, you know, like you just kind of break that race up into these like big chunks. And so we wanted to do something. And and I would say like for, for Strava, our like three core tenants are competition, community, and the record. And if we can mix all three of those elements into a race like this one, it just really feels like we get that message around our brand in there. And so, you know, obviously the community around a live stream and just like bringing that to people who can't be on the ground there, but still like feel like they're a part of it is really important to us. Competition, obviously it's a race. And so it's exciting to see how people do and the segment challenges and just in the race in general. And then the record for anyone who uploads, we're actually donating money to the Boys and Girls Club, the local Boys and Girls Club. It's the charity that Brendan picked. We're also giving prize money to the female and male who get to the segment, top of the segment first, but also... So the random person who gets in the middle <laughs> and the, the dead fucking last um, person in the segment <laughs> inclusion. And so I just, I think there's some really cool elements of that feed into the things we care about as a brand and the things that we want our athletes and people on the ground to take away from Strava as a part of our involvement. Yeah. As a spectator and as a fellow marketer, it's cool to see Strava align with some of the most innovative elements of our sport. Like I feel like the live stream is one of the new tech forward approach. So that's really cool. What do other parts of this future events playbook look like? I, there's also elements that are in our product that we're hoping to develop so that, you know, if people want to follow people racing certain races, like, can we allow for that to happen? Like it was really cool during UTMB on our social feed, our French at, um, country managers were, you know, like updating people in our Instagram stories of the top winners in each of the events, but it would just be like a really cool way for it to show up on our product. During the tour, we did a whole activation around the um, king of the day. And so whoever like got this segment that day, they would get awarded this like Strava jersey. And if you followed the tour club, you would get this like in-feed element that would say like, Tade got the king of the day award. And then we also have these new map features where we can decorate your map. And so for the UTMB, there was a trigger word that if you put UTMB or CCC or, you know, all the races in there that you would get this kind of like cool map element. And so I'd love to do that for future races so that people who are you know, following the New York City Marathon see their friends upload. And there's a little Statue of Liberty at the end of this, like, I don't know, <laughs> whatever kind of map treatment that we'd want to see on that. And so just really trying to figure out how we can bring the event to life on our platform and also be there for the athletes at the events that they like their key takeaway should be like, man, I need to be on Strava. They really understand me as an athlete and a runner who races. Well, I want to continue to, to geek out on marketing here. One thing that interests me, I think a couple of years back, you put a couple really popular features behind the paywall, uh, one being segments. And I mentioned that because I'm curious about the strategies that have historically worked well for Strava from a marketing standpoint, a 
building engagement, and then B, converting that engagement into uh, subscribers, if you could talk about that. Sure. So up until 2020, as a brand marketer, and I should very clarify, I'm on the brand marketing side. So I'm trying to make athletes feel things and learn about Strava. We were tasked with growth. Like my KPIs were registrations in North America. And it's not that I didn't care about the subscription, but because my remit was so focused on growth, it's like, get them in. Someone else is doing that job for us. We also noticed over the years that our organic growth is incredibly great. People who know and love Strava tell their friends to join. It's way more fun when your friends join. So even some of the paid efforts that we had around growth brought in what I would call low quality users. You know, they would register for the app. But if you think about Strava, cool, you just downloaded an app. It's not like Angry Birds and you're suddenly just like playing a game and, you know, clicking through some things while you're sitting down. Like you have to get up and go for a run or a ride or, you know, follow a friend. Like there's a barrier to to getting into Strava to understand what it's all about. That was really hard to articulate when we were just doing paid media. And so as a brand marketing team, we really shifted to engagement so that there's like still this element of like kind of spiraling that up into getting more people on the platform. In 29 or in 2020, when we shifted the paywall, we obviously, not obviously, but we saw a lot of growth during the pandemic when people were sort of forced outdoors to do their sport instead of gyms and had nothing else to do but like try and connect with friends digitally. We had decided to move our paywall before that. And strategically, our CEO who came back into the company to lead the company at the end of 2019 was like, we need to survive as a company by making our subscription like a a massive value for our athletes. And so it was an all hands on deck kind of approach that everyone was going to be focused on this subscriptions. And from a brand perspective, this is emotionally attaching people to Strava in a way that points to why the subscription is the best part of Strava. Mm. And so everything we've done since then is still focused on engagement, focused on a very funny KPI called HWOW, wow, (laughs) which is a habitual weekly average user because we know that the athletes that upload on a regular basis, regardless of what features they use, tend to subscribe at a much higher rate. And so our approach has largely been like every marketing piece we do, we're going to add an element of a subscriber feature. That's why like a lot of the things you probably are seeing around segments, because one, it's, you know, a core competitive advantage we have. And two, it's like, it's one of the things that people love about Strava and almost anyone can kind of get around the idea of a segment, even if you're just like going for a run in your backyard. And then On top of that, we have a whole product marketing team that spends a lot of their time thinking about how can we be really smart and thoughtful about when we're hitting athletes, our free athletes, with a trial, the kind of language that we're using, the feature that we're advertising to them or implying that they would be a good fit for. And so there's now been like these really good like pipes that we're connecting between brand um, and product marketing to really make sure that the athletes feel like there's this, you know, cohesive approach to getting them in the funnel, if you will. One last marketing 
question here. I, I was thinking about the way that I discovered Strava. And if I remember correctly, it was through word of mouth. And I'm just going to assume that word of mouth is a big channel Huge. for Strava. The question I have here is if current and future users are discovering Strava in places that you really can't track with attribution software, how do you build the case for those types of marketing strategies and go about mapping the effectiveness of them? Like how do you, how do you work with this dark funnel? <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. It's actually something me and uh, my boss have actually been working on in the US because organic growth can only get you so far. Word of mouth growth can only get you so far. Yeah. And so there's this massive opportunity in the in the US for us. We like in the UK, for example, we have roughly, I forget, like something the teens percentage of the population of the UK is on Strava. We have like insane numbers in the UK. And in the US, we're only like single digit percentage. And so we have this massive opportunity for growth. We also monetize better in the US. And so we're really trying to figure out like, how can we invest in brand building exercises that give us confidence that it's driving the kind of growth and brand perception that is going to increase that, like kind of increase that word of mouth, but really just like get more people asking, what is Strava? Why Strava? Oh, I get why, why Strava starting to consider it, like really driving that top of funnel awareness. And then likewise consideration in ways that we're really focused on current athlete activities. Because if you think about it, and this is like a fun stat we have that we have shared in the past, it's like for every one minute that people spend in the app, they spend 50 minutes doing activities, which is awesome. Except if we're relying on product marketing to sell you a subscription and you're only in the app for one minute, we have you know, 60 seconds of your time to say like, Hey, this is why segments are awesome. And if we can remind you through some brand building exercises about Strava, there's even like that subscription consideration that happens, or, you know, maybe it's like, Oh, I haven't uploaded for a long time. My runs, or maybe I want to go out for a bike ride elements that we're not, we haven't considered when we're just doing engagement exercises in like in our own ecosystem. So we'll, we'll be exploring opportunities on that side into 2022, which I'm hoping will continue for a long time. <laughs> but I think to your point, we're trying to do it really thoughtfully so that we can understand what's working, what's not, so that as time goes on, we're being really smart about it. I've mentioned this before in, in previous conversations, but that stat that compares app usage to real world activity. That's such a beacon of hope for social media. I feel like <laughs> so. so. <laughs> I, I mean, I just think of like Instagram and other platforms where you just can spend, I mean, the hours can tick away for some people scrolling through their feeds. And I think also on Strava, almost everybody is a creator. Almost everybody mm -hmm. that uses the app uploads. And I think uh -huh. on other apps, that's not the case. Like on Instagram, I'd say more than half the people are consuming as opposed to making posts. And so it's cool that there's like a default sense to, to upload in Strava as opposed to just kind of passively use it. Yeah. I think the only people who probably do that are coaches. Yeah. That's a good counter example for sure. So the next thing I want to talk about is I've always been curious about this. 
in the same way that like North Face and Patagonia and Nike have like a rotation of sponsored athletes in these sports, does Strava have an athlete sponsorship program? And, and if so, what does it look like? And what does the relationship look like? What are the athletes expected to do in that, in that arrangement? So we don't have a pure, what you would think of as a sports marketing program where we sign an athlete for an annual contract and ask them to do this, that, and the other thing. We did in the, oh, I'm going to start 2012, 2013, maybe even up to like 2016. So athletes like Lawrence Tendam, Ted King, Tim Johnson, mm. we even sponsored Killian Dornette. We worked with Jesse Thomas. But what we realized is that we were asking them to do like specific things. And so we were really just paying them for that one specific thing. We didn't have this whole program where there were a spokesperson for us and they had to do like X number of posts. And to be honest, I think when we stopped working, I forget what athlete it was. We stopped working with them and their agent was like, they're going to stop uploading. We were like, okay, we're okay. Sure enough. Six weeks later, he's like back uploading. (laughs) Cause like we're, I mean, as a cyclist, especially like, all your friends are on it. Where are you going to go? You care about the KOMs yeah, that you have if you're there. And so I think there, there was a, not a, not a light that went off, but all the pros were kind of using our platform already. So we were never going to pay anyone to use it. What we were paying for was them talking about it, participating in campaigns, doing speaking engagements, writing for us. And so we have a very piecemeal way of working with athletes. So like if we're going to run a campaign, so I'm working with Molly Seidel for this New York City Marathon, Fall Marathon Club piece. And we're paying her to work with us to write content, to promote us on social, to participate in the club. And so it ends up being I wouldn't say it's necessarily like more lucrative for the athletes, but we're not, we're not asking them to do anything beyond this, like set amount of things that that they've done. And it's usually like the athletes are already uploading to Strava. So they're already participating in the platform and essentially creating content for us by participating in those activities. And then we just want to keep working with a lot of the same athletes on like the pro and influencer side, but also the athletes who are using our product to have those kind of inspiring stories like I was talking about from becoming a marathoner, right? which is another, it's like we have a, it's kind of an ambassador program of sorts, which we call Team Strava. That's a couple hundred athletes in each of our key markets. And there are a lot of, a lot of them we found through our data, like who's engaging with the product the most? And we reach out to them and they become part of this like group of people that gets early access to product features. They get like an exclusive Strava kit because we don't sell our kits anywhere. And just like, and they're, they participate in our campaigns. We feature their stories. We're now trying to figure out how we can like boost their social presence. And so they, my goal in that program right now, and there's a, a possibility that it evolves is really making sure that we're telling a breadth of stories about all the athletes on our platform and still like making sure people are aware that pros use our product because they love it. I mean, Molly's like the perfect example of a, an authentic Strava athlete. She loves using Strava. She geeks out on the data. Her titles are funny. She even, I think posted on Instagram one time, like if you're looking to see my training on Instagram, go to Strava. (laughs) This is amazing. She's one of my favorite follows. And actually on that topic, if there's anybody at Strava that we can put on Courtney DeWalter to encourage her (laughs) to get on the platform, that would be amazing. And I've talked about this to no end in other episodes, but I would love to see her on too, because I feel like she is similar to Molly, such an amazing personality in addition to being a great athlete. And she would add so much. 
Yeah, no, I agree. It was funny. Our, one of our founders was asking me if she was on Strava because he's like, I was asked the question, who would I like to see on Strava? And I don't think she is, but I'd really like to see her on Strava. <laughs> and I was like, no, she's not. And I, it's not like she's not aware of it. I think she just probably has her own reasons for not being on Strava. Right. Just Mo- Molly. Yeah. Molly's a great example. Are there other examples, other athlete collaborations? Like I do, I thought I remembered like Hillary Allen running a branded podcast at some point. Is there other initiatives like that? Yep. So she was our podcast host when we were doing our podcast a couple of years ago. Um, and we still work with her on a one-off basis. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, we're still building relationships with these athletes. We're just not paying them every single time. Like we've worked really closely with Lauren Fleshman and a lot of content that she did for us and more near-term athletes. So we've worked with Jim Walmsley a lot. He did this whole, like what we called evangelism program with us last year. Like what's your favorite Strava feature? It was right after we moved the paywall yeah. and he continues to reach out with like cool ideas that you know, he wants to do, which is awesome. And on the cycling side, we've worked with a lot of the tour athletes, but again, you know, it's largely around just kind of like uploading. And again, the dream bigger campaign that I did, I paid a a couple, like a handful of athletes to write content for us. One of them being Alphine Tulimuk and Jake Riley and the marathon side. So just really cool to work with them and have them post about Strava. They regularly upload. So it wasn't like a a hard thing to get them to do that either. The the last thing I want to comment on in this thread is how cool it is in the Strava era that we get such an intimate view into elite athlete training life, like prior Mm -hmm. to what, maybe 2008, all of these athletes trained in the dark, you know, figuratively speaking. And now we get this direct look into their lives, not just in competition, but in training, which is so cool. And like another, the fan in me wishes they used the po- the post function more as well yeah. to include that written element as well. So that's more of a comment than a question. That no, but that feature has largely gone unused I'm because of awareness. I think there's a lack of awareness. Um, I actually noticed David Roach has been using it quite a bit, just promoting writing that he does. Same with Mario Frioli. And, but it's because they've been on Strava for a really long time. And I think Mario was even part of our pilot program when we launched that feature. So he's like, obviously aware of it. Yeah. And we did recently hire a head of content to figure out what are other ways that content exists on Strava. And this isn't like content, like storytelling that we're already doing. It's more like, how do we make posts something that athletes are doing all the time? Or what does it look like when a professional athlete has a presence on Strava beyond just their activities? You know, is it like their upcoming races? Is it the podcast that they've been a part of? Is it the writing that they've been doing? You know, like whatever things that is. And so hopefully sort of like creating this ecosystem for athletes related to like all of the content that they're producing. Yeah. I, I'm a huge fan of the post function just as a user of Strava. And this is anecdotal. I personally think that there's an appetite for long form content as well. Like Mm. people say that we have short attention spans, but I've heard this quote, we have short consideration spans, not short attention spans. And if we latch onto something that we like, we will go down that rabbit hole. So yeah, if you're an athlete out there, please use the post function. (laughs) And if you don't know how to use it, just Google it. (laughs) Email me. No, please don't. So the next question here, we, we did talk about this a little bit, but obviously, or maybe not obviously, the, the original audience of athletes on Strava were these like hardcore cyclists who were obsessed with segments and leaderboards, et cetera. 
And I'm curious what the strategy has been from a marketing standpoint to accommodate that original audience. I think Mark Ganey said, you know, don't abandon the core, mm-hmm. uh, and, but at the same time, also create a platform where there's new users coming on that are, are less hardcore. I guess my question is, and I'm kind of rambling here, but how do we make all athletes on the platform feel comfortable being their raw, authentic selves? That is a question we debate a lot. <laughs> Strategically, we are focused on really trying to engage the committed athlete while making sure that we are being inclusive of all like body types and you know making sure that there's representation across the board in any of the campaigns and stories that we're doing. Mm. It still doesn't mean that we're going to walk away from, you know, sponsoring events like Broken Arrow, that we're sponsoring gravel race in LA. I'm working on getting a, you know, a cycling team on board from like a sponsorship perspective, you know, so there's still, you know, we're signed, we signed Molly Seidel to work on New York city marathon content, but the way that, and I guess this, this some comes from somewhat of a personal perspective, but I would imagine the rest of the brand team would agree. It's really about taking those, hardcore athletes and making their stories relatable to other athletes. Like the prompt I've given Molly is like newbie tips from a newbie. You know, like she's run her first marathon like a year and a half ago and she's still learning how to do this, this distance. And so like, how can she take what she's done and, and make it relatable for the everyday athlete. And similarly, like with the dream bigger campaign, it was like, man, like what are the tips you would give to people who are like chasing big dreams, you know? And so it was really trying to get them to give relatable tips around how they approached being an athlete. And I think Molly said this today during our, I was like, running does suck. It's really hard. And it's not like she goes out because she's this Olympian and can just like rattle off a six minute mile. No problem. Like it still really hurts (laughs) at times to have to do that if you're not in the right frame of mind. And so I do think that there's like creating relevant content for the athletes who really care about sport, but still making sure that the people who are sort of coming into it feel like they're included or can at least like relate somewhat to the stories we're telling. Yeah. 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 (laughs) To spin off on that, I want to cover this last question. Then we'll go to this lightning round of questions, but I am very interested in seeing more female participation in mountain ultra trail running, as well as more diversity in general across the board. And I'm curious if you have any thoughts on, ways that our sport can change to become more inclusive and what strategies and tactics have worked at Strava, for example, that could be applied to our sport at large in that area? I would say the biggest part of representation in trail and ultra running is that no one sees a black female trail runner when they're looking at the marketing that's coming out of these races, or if they're looking at the winners that they, oh, you know, I think there's, there's a, a disservice that we do in the trail and ultra running space where we just focus on the athletes who are winning the races, mm. because I, I'll tell you, and I, I would have bet a lot of people would agree with me. The last fucking hour of Western States is my favorite. And it's because the people who are finishing that race 
have been out there longer than anyone and deserve way more accolades than the person who's been doing it in 15 hours. No offense, Jim Walmsley, but we don't give enough. There's not enough promotion of that element of the sport. And not to say that the people who are finishing last or the people who are being misrepresented, but until you see yourself in the field of this race, you don't think like, oh my gosh, I can do that. And the barrier, the, the barrier to that race, like even the story Brett tells when he was thinking, I think he volunteered at the North Face during the 50 mile race bid pickup. And he saw like this older woman who came in to pick up a bib for the 50 mile. And he's like, she can do it. She can do it. I can do it. You know, it was this element of, if you don't see this as like a human possibility and you don't see someone who looks like you, you don't think that it's possible to do that. And so it's a chicken egg thing, (laughs) but the more that those brands and races can put those athletes at the front, um, I think the more interest we'll get in those groups. Yeah. The the chicken or the egg point is, is well taken. I'll be curious, like who the first athletes are to take that stand and to be there so that they can be an example for future generations. And I'll also I think const- it was good that all the women did so well at Western States. And that was like the story. Oh yeah. And at UTMB, American mm-hmm. women have had no problems winning that yeah. race. For example, yeah. Nikki and Courtney, Rory, it, incredible. But one of our advisors, um, Allison Desir and her husband were out at the rut and, and Amir was doing the race, her husband. And she's like, I'm literally the only black woman here. Like the, like only one. And granted you're also in Montana, but she's like, I'm at a race, like a relatively popular race. Yeah. And the misrepresentation <laughs> of people of color at that race was just like astounding. And I think that's, it's not just the rut. <laughs> so it's a lot of all like all of those races no it's across the board yeah mm-hmm. the the one thing last thing i want to comment on there yeah. is i i can attest to the fact uh that the, the i think the back of the pack is the most exciting part of the race and it's like the perfect representation of life in a day i was at i was working in an aid station at the wasatch 100 this past weekend and i was there from like 11 a.m to 3 p.m watching people fight cutoffs and there is nothing cooler and nothing more inspiring and um Jim Walmsley, if you take offense to this, I still stand by it, actually. It is, it is way cooler. And yeah. I'm totally sold. And we should cover that part of the race as vigorously as we cover. <laughs> I run far should cover the last 10 runners, male and female. Yes. No, it was. I think that was one of the things that I was so glad the live stream was there. And Billy called it. He's like, it's the magic hour, you know, when people are trying to finish the race. And it's so good. It makes me cry every time. Okay, let's do this lightning round of questions. Are you ready? Yes. (laughs) Okay, first question. So I actually, this isn't in my list, but I'm going to ask it anyways. I'm curious if if Strava existed, let's just say in the 90s or the 80s, which athlete would you want to see the historical training logs for? This is going to be a funny one. He's going to be Topher Gaylord. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Just because he's been ultra running for so long, like... How do you have that kind of longevity and still be as fast as he is? He's a fascinating human specimen. I'm going to add mine. So I grew up in a place called Cape Elizabeth, Maine, and our hometown hero is Joan Benoit Samuelson, who (gasps) won gold at the 84 Olympics. And if there was some way that I could see her training logs from that era, 
and running in Cape where she did a lot of her training. It would be so cool. So I had to add my two cents there. It's a great question. What is a Strava feature that you have lobbied for for years that hasn't been added to the platform quite yet, but maybe you're holding out hope? Well, I'm saying this today as the day this feature launched. (laughs) We have had gear on Strava.com for a very long time. And it's one of my favorite features because I can tell when my shoes are done and I need a new pair. You cannot until today add shoes on your mobile app. Oh, We have jammed. We do this thing at Strava where like every, it's like three or four times a year. I think it's three times a year where everyone just like takes the week off and they get to like build products and features that they wish were on Strava. Someone has jammed on gear on mobile at least once a year for the last five years. And it finally launched today. So I don't have <laughs> another feature. It launched today. <laughs> it launched today. <laughs> September yeah. 15th, people. Yes. <laughs> so check it out in your profile under gear. This is the most excited I've been since great adjusted pace on mobile. <laughs> I know, right? Great adjusted day. pace. Yes. Although I'll say I'm, I'm so bad at tracking my shoes that I just put Converse All-Stars as my default. <laughs> And so people think like I ran CCC and Converse All-Stars. But now you can add them without having to go to the web. What is a Strava feature that you were surprised was a hit with users? I would, this one is a, not surprised. I would say the, there was less fanfare about it, but it's the one we've received a, a lot of recent good feedback on is we just updated how you can edit an activity including new privacy features around like hiding your map and the the feedback we've gotten has just been incredible like oh i've been like waiting to put private notes in or i've been waiting to be able to edit my activity this way i've been waiting to say like you know we have like new ways to make your map look colorful and just like it's just a way easier way of telling the story that you want to tell about your activity and the edit map visibility is something that especially women and a lot of the pros and influencers I've worked with have been asking for. It's like, can I, can people just like see my stats without seeing my map? Or, you know, like if I'm staying somewhere, can I like hide more of where I am? So they don't have like a vicinity of like where I'm staying. And so those have been, they're kind of like table stakes features, but they're really huge with our audience. Very cool. I'll, I'll add to, I'm getting a little greedy here. I'm surprised that posts haven't yeah. been as popular because again, I, I think it's such a cool feature. I wish people used it more. What is the most recent bit of wisdom you've come across that resonated with you that you would like to share with the audience because maybe it has widespread applicability? Oh, I'm actually good. <laughs> I, I had a different one, but after uh, hearing Molly Seidel talk today, I thought this one was really helpful. And it was more in the camp of she is a professional athlete and she's like, I love beer and I love donuts and I eat them and I've been less injured than I have been my entire running career. And I think the key takeaway there is not drink a lot of beer, eat a lot of donuts, but it's like, don't not do something because you are worried about your fitness or your nutrition. It's like, we have to live our life and do the things that bring us joy even if it sometimes feels like, oh, society's going to judge me for drinking this beer as a professional athlete. And I just thought it was just something that stuck with me after her talk was like, yeah, just have the donut. (laughs) 
don't have a dozen of them if you're worried about making, but don't not live life. That is going on the, that's going on the Mount Rushmore of best answers in the lightning round. (laughs) Beer and donuts. (laughs) Beer and donuts. Uh, You got to live life. What is something, last question, what is something that isn't big now, but you think is going to be big in the future of trail and ultra running? It could be a form of training, nutrition, a race, a style of clothing, et cetera. This is something that has been going on, but I think the pandemic is sort of like spurred it a little bit more is really the ability to, it's not like the unsanctioned racing, but really like the ways we have disrupted racing with virtual events and some of those like crazy events that people were doing through like Zoom and on Strava to stay connected. I think you're going to see a lot. I think we'll see a lot more of that where people are engaging in like their own competitions with each other. Maybe it's in person. I think people really miss in real life places, but it's not necessarily a race or they're like virtual ways of connecting where they're kind of getting in small groups and joining up. I think the traditional races will still have a place in the world, but I think you're going to see a lot more people self-organizing really fun ways to make running interesting. Hopefully I'm strong I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. Well, I have had an absolute blast having this conversation. Mm-hmm. And at some point in the future, I would love to jam again on running store culture. That was yeah, really fun. Definitely. And then I, I mean, <laughs> oh, oh, absolutely. No, seriously. I would love that because uh, I think, I think that San Francisco running company is the blueprint for how a store should be built and run. So before we sign off here, are there any initiatives that you'd like to plug and where can people find you on social if, if you're there? I'm a consumer of Instagram. So don't follow me there. Just follow me on Strava. I put everything on there yeah. <laughs> and I'm just strava.com backslash athletes backslash Larissa. That's how long I've been at this company that I got my first name on there. And initiatives. Well, I think those who know Strava are always aware that we do our year in sport initiative. Um, But this is an early plug to get your miles in so that you have a very cool year in sport at the end of the year. It'll be in the product again. There'll be some new elements and data that we'll be presenting you with, but that should be coming in December. Well, Larissa, we're so grateful for your time. Thank you for coming on the Single Track Pod. Until next time. Yeah, thank you. Wow. Let me tell you, I am default fired up about life, but I am on another level right now. Thanks to Larissa. There were a couple threads that I enjoyed in particular in this one that I want to highlight. Number one, as Larissa brought to my attention, there really is a disservice we do in trail running when we only focus on the runners who are uh, competing at the top of the race and winning races. There's just not enough promotion of the other elements of the sport. And this goes back to that issue of representation, because as she mentions, if you don't see this as a human possibility, if you don't see someone who looks like you in the sport, you don't think it's possible to do it, or at least you're less inclined to think it's possible. And as we acknowledge, there are many things that need to be done, but one of the low-hanging fruit moves could be to acknowledge and promote the back of the pack race. They're out there the longest, they're fighting cutoffs, they're truly experiencing the trials and tribulations of life in a day. And oftentimes, they also have the most compelling stories outside the sport as well. All I can say anecdotally is I saw it with my own eyes at the Wasatch 100 last week. There's nothing cooler, nothing more inspiring in our sport. 
Second, our discussion about San Francisco Running Company. I know that this was a Strava episode, but that particular section of the conversation captured my soul. It made me want to start a running store, a trail running specific running store. Now, I'm not going to do that because I'm still still reeling from my conversation with Carl Meltzer about setting up a hundred mile race in the central Wasatch. Plus I have this newsletter to work on, but damn it, this is a call to action. It needs to be built here in the Salt Lake Valley. We simply don't have what Larissa described in SF Runco. I'm talking about a place for the community to come together, that quote unquote home for our trail running lives, a place that has achieved cult-like community status, a place that local trail runners truly want to represent a running store that isn't just about walking in and buying gear and then leaving, but a place that has couches, a TV with trail running content playing, maybe a pot of coffee brewing, you know, um, a location so close to the trails that you can host group runs straight from the stores, employees that are fired up to give you maps and routes and advice and speeches about why they're so stoked. Um, That was SF Runco, and we need it here. As Larissa said, when they arrived in Mill Valley, They were simply filling a void that they personally felt. And once they got to know the community and understood what they wanted as well, and as long as they kept putting all of that first, it was going to thrive. And it did. So yeah, that is my stump speech. Um, It's a stump speech for a trail running specific store that also doubles as a kind of clubhouse for our community. And if you're out there listening and you're inspired and you have the capacity, please go build this. And if you're actually going to do it, let's talk. I want to talk. Now that I think about it, I probably can't help, at least for now, but I will be the best hype person you could possibly ask for. So, all right, that's all for now. Thank you, Larissa. Uh, To the audience, be well. Stay on that literal and figurative single track. Let me tell you, it is amazing what you can accomplish when you take a relatively narrow focus on your life's work.